Our first reading this morning is in 1 John 2. But before that, let's just pray together, shall we? Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us and showing the way of salvation through faith in your Son. We ask you now to teach and encourage us through your word so that we may be better equipped in serving you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Our second reading is from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 21 to 26. But this one, that is, Jesus Christ, became a high priest with an oath because of the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Accordingly, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. getting my script to the PA operator. I forgot to give it to him so that we can see the slides. I wonder if you've ever seen those articles in magazines or on Facebook about former celebrities that ask, where are they now? People who seem to have disappeared or dropped out. Or maybe the question is, what are they doing now? Well, those are the questions we're going to look at this morning about Jesus. <clears throat> Where is he now? And what is he doing now? If you were listening closely to the Bible readings, you'll know the answer. But maybe it's not something you've really thought about much, <clears throat> and you'll be in good company. In fact, I heard recently that when Peter Adam was teaching a final year class at Ridley on the book of Hebrews, he asked those questions and just got blank looks. Final year Ridley students couldn't answer the questions. At last, one of the students piped up with, well, uh, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. 
That should sound familiar to you. If, as we do here at St. Tom's, you say the Apostles' Creed fairly regularly. According to the Creed, after Jesus rose from the dead, he went up to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we know that sometime in the future, he will come again and will judge the living and the dead. But what is Jesus doing in the meantime? Is he just sitting around, having a rest, taking a break while he waits for the trumpet blast when it's time to spring into action again? Well, no. According to the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus is not just sitting around. In our Hebrews text this morning, we read, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So Jesus is acting as a priest and interceding for us. To intercede means to intervene on someone's behalf. We talk about intercessory prayer, where we ask God for something on behalf of someone else. But how does Jesus act as a priest and how does he intercede for us? The letter to the Hebrews is the only book of the New Testament that explicitly calls Jesus a priest, actually a high priest. But Jesus' role as priest is implicit in the word Christ. When we refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ, that's not a name like John Brown. Christ is not a surname, it's a title. So often in the New Testament, Jesus is called Christ Jesus, like senator, professor, ambassador, or king. The title Christ tells us what Jesus' role is. And the word Christ, derived from the Greek, and the word Messiah, derived from the Hebrew, both mean the same thing, and that is the anointed one. You might think that doesn't help us much with knowing Jesus' role. Well, no, it doesn't, unless you know the Old Testament background. Because there were three groups of people in the Old Testament who were anointed for their role, three anointed ones. And that was prophets, priests, and kings. We had the example recently of the new King Charles being anointed in the tradition of the kings of the Bible. We might mostly think of Jesus as king when we think of the word Messiah, because we know that was how Israel envisaged the Messiah, as a king who would liberate Israel from her enemies. But the title Messiah, like the title Christ, encompasses all three roles, king, prophet, priest. So Jesus is a priest. The role of the priest in the Old Testament was to act as a mediator between God and people. He did this in two ways. Two ways, by offering sacrifices in the temple and 
by praying for the people. The priest represented the people to God. He acted on their behalf. Now we know that Jesus' priestly work of offering sacrifice is finished. Earlier we read in the letter to the Hebrews, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And we read that sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Then the very next verse after our reading in, in chapter 7, it tells us that unlike other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, but he sacrificed for the sins of the people once and for all when he offered himself. Just before he dies on the cross, Jesus cries, it is finished. He has borne our guilt. He has endured our punishment. The perfect sacrifice has been offered. Complete atonement has been made. Jesus has risen from the dead. Hell has been vanquished. Condemnation has been removed. Death has been defeated. What else is there for Jesus to do? Well, Hebrews tells us that there is one aspect of Jesus' priestly ministry that has not finished but continues. In fact, it is permanent. And that is his ministry of intercession. As verse 25 says, Christ is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. In some versions of this text, it says that Christ is able to save to the uttermost rather than completely. But the word in Greek could have two different senses. <clears throat> it could mean something like completely, or it could mean always, excuse me. In this case, <coughs> I'm not sure that helped. In this case, it means both, both completely and always. Because Jesus' intercession is both complete so that we can have confidence his work is done and ongoing so that we can have confidence that he will never abandon us. He saves both completely and forever to the uttermost. And it is Jesus interceding that gives us this confidence now we can see why the, writer to the letter of the, why the writer of the letter to the Hebrews wants to emphasise this ongoing ministry of Jesus to his or her readers. You might be surprised that I'm saying his or her readers. I say this because we don't actually know who wrote this letter. But one theory is that it could have been Priscilla who is mentioned as a teacher in Acts and in Romans. Be that as it may. 
The letter is about their confidence, the confidence of the Hebrews, or rather, lack of it. As I said, we really don't know <coughs> who wrote this letter. And we don't know exactly who it was written to. There seems to be a consensus that it was to Christian believers who had been converted from Judaism and possibly living in Jerusalem. But we do know something very important about them. They have been insulted and persecuted for their faith. And some of them have even had their property confiscated, which the writer says they joyfully accepted. But that was earlier in their Christian journey. It seems that now they are struggling and actually in danger of giving up their faith. So they started really well, but now things are tough. And this letter is full of warnings to them, not to drift away, not to have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, not to give up meeting together as some are doing, and not to throw away their confidence Instead, they are to hold firmly to the faith they profess and to show diligence to the very end and to strengthen their feeble arms and weak knees. So the basic message of the letter can be summed up in one word, perseverance. They are not to give up. They are to finish the race they've begun they are to persevere, even in the face of persecution, suffering and difficulties. I'm sure you all know people, perhaps dear friends or members of your family, who've drifted away from faith, who've turned away from God, who've thrown away their confidence in him. Maybe you even feel like that yourself sometimes. You just don't know if you still believe. So the relevance of this letter to the Hebrews for us is that its main purpose is to encourage them to keep going, not to give up even when it's hard. Now some of you might know of Parkrun. I know some of you do Parkrun. It's a five kilometer run that happens in various locations all around the world at 8 a.m. every Saturday morning. There's one at Gardner's Creek, uh, a deacon just down the road. Well, one of the lovely things about Parkrun is that they have volunteers along the track encouraging the runners. You're doing great, keep going. Even the stragglers at the end of the pack, huffing and puffing, are greeted with applause and nearly there, you can do it. Don't give up. Well, the letter to the Hebrews is a bit like that. And one of the ways that the letter encourages its readers not to give up is by assuring them that Jesus is their great high priest and that he's still interceding for them. Why would they want to go back to the old system of sacrifices in the temple and the human high priest when Jesus' work is so much better. That would have spoken powerfully 
to the original readers of the letter, who are totally familiar with that old system. I wonder if, as I've been speaking, a certain song has come into your mind as we've been thinking of Jesus' ministry as a high priest. We sing it here occasionally. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. But the language of high priesthood doesn't resonate with us today quite as it would have done for the original readers. Sacrifices, temples, high priests, quite foreign to us. So how can this teaching about intercession work for us today? Especially if, like the Hebrews, we're in danger of losing confidence in God, of becoming discouraged or disillusioned or of drifting away from faith. Well, priests and temples are one context for intercession. The other context is a court of law. Even if we've never personally been involved in a court proceeding, we're familiar with the concept from watching TV. And it's in this legal context that Paul presents Jesus interceding for us in the book of Romans. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Remember we said that to intercede means to intervene on behalf of another person. If you are unfortunate enough to be put on trial in a court of law, you need someone to intercede for you, to represent you, to be your advocate, to put your case. That person is your defence lawyer or your advocate. And that is how Jesus is described in, the, in uh, our first reading, 1 John. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So in this analogy, God the Father is the judge. And Jesus appears for the defence. And it's probably not stretching the analogy too far to say that the prosecutor is Satan. The word Satan, after all, means the accuser. Satan accuses us before God. And Satan accuses us to ourselves, pointing out our weaknesses, our failures, our sins. And so, we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, 
Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Why do we need Jesus to intercede for us, to be our advocate with God the Father? Because our lives fail to meet our own standards, let alone God's standard, which is perfection. As Tim Keller says, whether we admit there is a God or not, our life is a trial. Underneath all our attempts to get approval and a positive verdict from others is a search for the approval of God. But how could we gain God's approval? We need someone to act for us. But how does Jesus gain God's approval for us? We know that in a criminal trial, the accused can plead guilty or not guilty. But a not guilty plea is not an option for us. We know, we know, the judge knows, our advocate knows that we are guilty. So what are the options? Our advocate could plead mitigation. He had a rough childhood, or she fell in with a bad crowd. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't make excuses for us. Perhaps our advocate could beg the judge for mercy. Yes, she's guilty, but please, overlook it, give her one more chance. But Jesus doesn't ask for mercy for us. He asks for justice. Jesus admits we are guilty, but he says, I have paid the debt. I have taken the punishment. The defendant must go free. Justice demands it. And this is how Jesus intercedes for us. This is how he is our advocate with the Father. As the song says, because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland puts it this way, We are free, free of the need to defend ourselves, to bolster our sense of self-worth, to quietly parade before others our virtues and painful self-consciousness, painful subconscious awareness of our inferiorities and weaknesses. We can leave our case to be made by Christ. So if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is interceding for you right now. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ. And so he always stands in your place. That truth should fill us with great confidence and hope. Whatever happens in our life, whatever mistakes we make, however broken we think we are, we can be sure that Jesus will save us to the uttermost. He will save us completely 
and he will save us forever. Our confidence and hope don't come from what we are like, from our hearts, but from what Jesus is like, his heart. Tim Keller again puts it this way. The central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are for us, not against us. Thank you that no one can bring a charge against us, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you are at the right hand of God interceding for us. Thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. Not trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or danger. Thank you that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.